This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting for Room Now virtually from ACR 2023. I'm here today to talk to you about Abstract 840, which was presented at uh, Sunday's ORA Oral Abstract session. This was by Zhou Feng Zheng et al. Um, it was a head-to-head comparison of TLL018 and tofacitinib in patients with active rheumatoid arthritis. It's a phase two uh, randomized control trial. So TLL018 um, is a new agent. It is a combination JAK1 and TIC2 inhibitor. We'd already seen some of this data presented earlier this year at Jular, um, where it caused uh, quite a commotion. Um, so as I said, this was a phase two randomized controlled trial comparing this new drug to tofacitinib in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Study was based in China. It enrolled 101 uh, patients. It was for an initial uh, 12-week duration with a 12-week uh, follow-up period. It looked at three different doses of this novel agent, either uh, 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams, or 30 milligrams BD. Um, mostly, I'm, I'm going to focus on the higher dose because that had the most uh, positive um, outcomes. And really, to some extent, these were earth-shattering. Um, so we've had so many drugs for rheumatoid arthritis. And the very, very strange thing is that they all seem to come out at around the same numbers in the randomized control trials. There's not very much to differentiate all these agents, despite the fact that they work in very, very different ways. And even when we've done head-to-head trials, there may be very, very small differences, but, but nothing huge. This study, however, did show something huge. So ACR 50 response rates at 12 weeks 72% for TLL018 versus 42% for tofacitinib. So an enormous difference. The other new thing we see in the data now is that there was an escape arm in this study. So the patients who were on tofacitinib after 12 weeks, they could switch over to this uh, TLL018. And they did that at the 20 milligram dose. And of those patients, 83% of them reached ATR50 after a further 12 weeks. So this is really, really surprising data to me. This agent looks like a miracle drug. It looks better than anything we've ever seen before. We're no real extra safety signal seen either. So, so nothing on that count. This is either going to go one or one of two ways, isn't it? This gonna, if this holds up in the phase three trials, this is going to revolutionize our treatment in rheumatoid arthritis. This is going to be the go-through drug. It's probably going to be the first agent used, it's definitely going to be the first advanced therapy used. On the other hand, we've seen promising phase two results before, and it may be that uh, all this falls down and this drug uh, comes out looking more similar to our existing agents. We don't know what's going to happen. We'll need to wait for the phase three data. I am going to put my nickel down and say, I don't think it's going to work out. I think it's going to come down looking the same as everything we've had previously at the end of the day, and that this data is just some sort of blip or fluke. But time will tell. Um, I'm Richard Conway. Follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. And remember to tune into Room Now for all the updates from ACR 2023. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland, reporting virtually for Room Now from ACR 2023. 
I'm here to talk to you today about abstract 1582. This was presented at um, Monday's plenary session uh, number two. It was by Bryant England and colleagues. It was non-TNF inhibitor biologic or TSD mards versus TNF inhibitors in rheumatoid arthritis ILD. So the reason uh, this study has come about is that there has been this previous suggestion that TNF inhibitors are associated with increased mortality um, in patients with RAILD. There are a number of studies hinting at this. The main one was a BSR registry study, which compared TNF inhibitors to rituximab, um, showing worse outcomes with TNF inhibitors. Really, to many of us, this never really made mechanistic sense. TNF inhibitors are a fantastic drug for almost every other aspect of rheumatoid disease, among other conditions. They have not been associated with uh, lung disease in a de novo fashion uh, commonly at all. And why would they worsen this aspect of rheumatoid disease when potentially helping all other ones? So this is my favorite abstract uh, probably from this meeting. It is such a smart study, um, very important clinical findings and presented in a really, really nice way uh, today as well. So this is a target trial emulation. Um, it was um, using a new user propensity score matched uh, design. It was based in the VA. So there's some caveats with that. So as you'd expect, this was largely male, 92%, largely older patients with a mean age of 68 years. And they compared uh, non-TNF biologic or TSD marts to TNF inhibitors in patients who had RAILD. They enrolled 474 patients in this study. The non-TNF inhibitor patients, 53% of them were rituximab and 28% were on abatacept. And this is important because these are the two agents we favor in RAILD. We think these are our best two agents and 80% of the patients being compared to TNF inhibitors were on one of these two drugs. Findings, so there was an adjusted hazard ratio of 1.22 for respiratory-related hospitalization for favoring the TNF inhibitors. There was no difference in all-cause or respiratory mortality. So this hazard ratio 1.22, it's not statistically significantly different. I mean, people could argue that the 22% uh, potential increase that is clinically important it's within the error range of the study but even if that is true it comes down to the tnf inhibitor side so really I, I think this study largely exonerates tnf inhibitors from their their previously suggested role in worsening outcomes in oral ild i'm not sure it quite says that they should be the first line agent i don't think it'll change my practice to start initiating tnf inhibitors preferentially in patients with oral ild but I think what it will say is if somebody's on a TNF inhibitor and they happen to have RAILD uh, coincidentally, I'm not going to be switching them off the TNF inhibitor to give them a different agent because this data really says that there is no need to do that. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway and check out Room Now for all the coverage from ACR 2023. Hello, everyone. I'm Richard Conway reporting for Room Now from ACR 2023. I'm reporting virtually from Dublin, Ireland. I'm going to talk to you today about abstract 1629. Uh, this was presented um, at Monday's uh, rheumatoid arthritis oral abstract session. This was by Caleb Michaud and colleagues. This was titled Persons with Rheumatoid Arthritis and Long COVID um, 
And then there's some other stuff which I'm going to skip for now in the title because it really gets at the study um, outcomes. So long COVID, we know all about this. It's um, very much answered the, the mainstream um, knowledge and it is not just confined uh, to health professional discussions. It's common, I've seen about 30% of COVID cases and about 10% of those, it seems to be more persistent. So it doesn't resolve um, soon after COVID. Those of us who, who've worked in this area for some time have noticed a lot of similarities between long COVID and other conditions that we've seen. So fibromyalgia being one that we see in rheumatology and also previous post-viral type syndromes such as chronic fatigue syndrome and ME. So the authors here looked at 667 patients who had rheumatoid arthritis and COVID. Of those 15%, were diagnosed with long COVID. And what the authors here were looking at was the characteristics of the patients before they got COVID and what happened uh, during COVID. So before COVID, they found that patients who subsequently went on to develop long COVID had a much higher rate of fibromyalgia as a pre-existing diagnosis, threefold increased risk, seen a 41% compared to 13%. Those who got long COVID tended to be older. They were less likely to be white. They had lower socioeconomic status. They had more depression, more comorbidities, and at worst rheumatoid arthritis-related patient-reported outcomes all before COVID happened. Their long COVID itself um, was tended to be more severe. They needed more intravenous antibiotics and had more hospitalizations for COVID. But both of those things did not happen to the majority of patients who developed long COVID. So the IV antibiotics was 23% versus 9%, and the hospitalizations was 18% versus 5%. So the authors came out with a, with a, a real hot take on um, their discussion of what these results meant. And they suggested that... Um, long COVID symptoms may reflect pre-existing illness that was there before um, COVID. That is probably going a bit too far uh, for me. I, I don't think uh, the data definitively lets us say that. I think it's probably not true either. Um, I think what we can say um, was the author's other conclusion that those with long COVID did have many symptoms that would be consistent with long COVID before they ever got COVID. So naturally then when COVID developed, those symptoms could be attributed um, to uh, long COVID as opposed to fibromyalgia or something else, uh, which would, would have been attributed to before uh, COVID. I think really what, what we are seeing with long COVID, or at least my conceptualization of it, is that lots of things play into this. Some of those are the things that happen during the COVID itself. Some of them may reflect pre-existing uh, characteristics um, of uh, the patients or of their diseases. I think another way of looking at this is if you have fibromyalgia to start off with and everything that comes with that, the symptoms, the impact of that on your life, and then you get COVID on top of it, I think it's, it's natural to expect that you probably are more likely uh, to uh, develop uh, symptoms of uh, long COVID. Um, so remember to check out um, Room Now for all the updates uh, from ACR 2023 and follow me on Twitter at Richard P.A. Conway. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. I would like to talk about 
HPV vaccination and cervical cancer screening in rheumatic disease. Last year, the ACR came out with updated guidelines on vaccination. The ACIP recommends HPV vaccination for individuals aged 11 to 26 year, years old. For those aged 26 to 45 years, particularly those um, SLE and RA patients or those with rheumatic disease who have not been previously vaccinated, the ACIP recommends HPV vaccination based on shared decision-making. Which brings me to discuss abstract number 1356 by the group of Dr. Amaya Small on the reproductive history and HPV vaccination awareness among women with SLE and RA. Their study is an interim analysis of their rheumatology women's reproductive health and wellness cohort in whom participants responded to questions on rheumatology history, reproductive history, and HPV vaccination awareness. The group then compared reproductive history and HPV vaccination status and awareness among their patients with SLE and RA included in the cohort. Now, both groups were similarly likely to be sexually active with similar reporting times since their most recent pap smears, as well as abnormal pap smear results. But SLE patients were reported to have persistently abnormal pap smear results on follow-up than RA patients. And in addition, cervical cancer screening discussions by rheumatologists were done more on SLE than RA patients. Both groups were also similar in terms of HPV vaccination awareness and HPV vaccination status. However, 50% of the cohort members who were, who were or are eligible for vaccination, these are respondents less than 45 years old, did not receive the HPV vaccine. The major reason reported was simply because they were not offered the vaccine. Other reasons included they did not know it was important and they were, they were concerned of the vaccine side effects. Studies such as these make us realize the daunting role we rheumatologists have to play in the management of our patients. It opens our eyes to the reality that despite the evidence and recommendations, HPV vaccination rates are still low. And I think that is a global um, global finding. So that being said, this interim analysis highlights the importance of increasing HPV disease awareness and discussing vaccination and cervical cancer screening with our SLE and RA patients. Follow me on X at Rumorampa and tune into Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Robert Chow reporting from Northern Virginia for Room Now, live coverage of ACR 2023. I wanted to focus on an abstract, uh, really looking at a head-to-head -head study. Uh, we all love head-to-head -head studies, and this is abstract 0522, which was a subgroup analysis of the SURPASS uh, trial from last year. Um, just to recap on that, that was a head-to-head -head phase three randomized controlled trial. Uh, on secukitumab and, and adalimumab biosimilar in axial spondylarthritis patients in terms of radiographic progression. And 
they found similar efficacy and both were equally uh, efficacious in preventing radiographic progression in these patients. This subgroup analysis looked for differences by baseline syndesmophytes and CRP status. So in the over 859 patients, 76% had an elevated CRP level, 73% had syndesmophytes, and 54% had both elevated CRP levels and syndesmophytes at baseline. The radiographic outcomes at two years were similar in both treatment arms, regardless of these predictive factors, such as syndesmophytes or the elevated CRP levels. However, independently, the group without syndesmophytes show the least radiographic progression in all treatment groups. And this was followed by the group without elevated CRP levels. Of course, conversely, the group with elevated CRP levels and then the group with syndesmophytes had higher uh, radiographic progression. Although neither syndesmophytes nor elevated CRP levels distinguished themselves between either treatment arms, we can say that the presence of syndesmophytes was a stronger predictor of radiographic progression than CRP levels overall. So I think this is something I will definitely take to my practice in treating uh, axial spondyl arthritis patients, you know, focusing even closer on syndesmophytes and CRP levels. So thank you for tuning into Room Now for live coverage of ACR 2023. Please follow me on X at Dr. RBC. Thanks. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now here at ACR 23 in San Diego. Today at the plenary session, this is Tuesday, uh, there was a great presentation about methotrexate use in RA. This is abstract 1583 presented by Varun Deer, where he presented the results of a study which looked at single-dose oral methotrexate versus split-dose oral methotrexate, both given weekly in a large cohort of RA patients. The study was done at six centers in India. These are patients with about two years of disease activity and uh, a mean age at entry of around 41 years. They had to have be seropositive. They had to have at least four tender and two swollen joints. And they were started on 15 milligrams, escalated to 20 in two weeks, and then 25 uh, by week four. And everyone was treated with 25 milligrams per week with supplemental folic acid. The primary endpoint of the study was unfortunately week 24. I'll say unfortunately because at week 16, they were still just on methotrexate, right? But at week 16, if they had a DAS that was greater than 3.2, the doctors could have added on leflunamide or sulfasalazine, and then the end of the study was six months or week 24, and that was a primary endpoint. Big mistake, as I'll show you in the results. So again, um, the study was sort of well-recruited and, and well-tolerated. The primary endpoint was at week 24, and the primary endpoint measure was a ULAR good response. Gotta say, I really still don't know what a ULAR good response is. And you know what? It wasn't different between split-dose oral and single-dose uh, methotrexate, 25 milligrams a week. However, if you looked at week 16, when people were just on, um, uh, methotrexate only with no other add-ons the differences were significant and highly significant at week 16 split dose oral acr 20 was 76 percent versus 52 with single dose um acr 50 55 percent versus 35 percent acr 70 25 versus 14 percent that's significant now why am i making a big deal out of this 
the problem is once you use more than 15 milligrams of methotrexate, you know that oral absorption is highly variable and could go down by as much as 50%. And that's why when you get up to 15 milligrams a week, you should be going into split dose oral. And what does that mean? The people that got 25 milligrams got 25 milligrams all at once on Wednesday morning. The people who got the split dose oral got 15 in the morning and 10 milligrams in the evening. And what that does is it greatly increases the absorption and the blood levels of methotrexate on par with that achieved by giving a parenteral dose of methotrexate. So that's why the study really helps inform practice that when you, once you're above 15 milligrams, you probably should go to split dose oral and you'll see really optimal outcomes for um, your patients receiving methotrexate for RA. The question is, as you, as you go to split dose oral and you deliver more drug to the patient, to the cell, do you not increase toxicity? And you should. However, in this study, they really didn't. They had actually more transaminitis, um, but these were not significant. They did have um, a little bit more in the way of um, uh, of nausea and or GI symptoms, but it was not significant, right? Other things that were important in this study, the patients who got split dose oral had better improvement in their DASH-28. They had um, uh, less need for rescue DMARDs, the addition of luflutamide or sulfazalazine. That was like for 35% in people on split dose oral versus 55% in people that were on the single dose once a week. So this study, which was an open label blinded assessor study, 24 weeks, 253 patients, really does help inform practice, and I think you'll be hearing a lot about it. It comes from ACR 23. Tune in for more. Hi, it's ACR Convergence 2023. I'm Dr. Eric Dine uh, from Atlantic Health, and uh, excited to talk more about some of the great abstracts that we're seeing at the conference today. I'm going to talk about abstract 0495, which is the ISER study. Uh, presented by Dr. Plaza uh, from 13 hospitals in Spain on axial spondyloarthritis or, or spondyloarthritis in general. Um, we know that spondyloarthritis has an overlap with IBD, and, and this study looked at how much undiagnosed disease there is in our spondyloarthritis patients. Uh, this is very relevant to consider, of course, because there is that overlap, um, but there are real treatment um, implications, and particularly when we think about medications like the IL-17 class that have a contraindication in IBD. Uh, so the study sought to determine the prevalence of undiagnosed inflammatory bowel disease in patients with spondylarthritis. This included ankylosing spondylitis, both radiographic and non-radiographic, as well as psoriatic arthritis. There were 559 patients included, a mean age uh, just over 50 years old, about half of them were male. 37% uh, radiographic uh, axial spondylitis, 36% uh, had peripheral um, uh, PSA, so those being the two biggest classes uh, that made up the group. Um, they looked at the screening test for IBD using the, the fecal calprotectin. And when they looked at it, they found that 47% of patients with psoriatic arthritis had a fecal calprotectin of greater than 80 micrograms per gram uh, versus 53% um, in axial spondylitis. Arthritis. So about 50% in both groups um, and, and just over 50% in, in the spondylarthropathy, uh, the axial family. 80% of the radiographic axial spondylarthritis had 
a high fecal calprotectin compared to just 20% in the non-radiographic. So radiographic definitely being a risk factor for this higher fecal calprotectin. Um, the mean FC values were also higher in the radiographic AXPOD patients, uh, pretty much 400 compared to about 300 in the non-radiographic and the PSA subgroup. Overall, um, when they went back to the patients, it, it looked like 10% of them did have a family history of IBD, uh, and almost 15% had clinical manifestations compatible with IBD, including asthenia in, in half of those patients, abdominal pain, chronic diarrhea, um, and, and up to 15%. Uh, so they did work up for these patients as appropriate, and they did uh, 189 colonoscopies uh, to look into these patients with the high fecal calprotectin. Um, 167 um, uh, of these biopsies were for the higher fecal calprotectin. Uh, and of these of these colonoscopies, um, almost 40% had some uh, pathological finding, mostly abscess ulcers in 66% of them, superficial ulcers, some erythema, uh, and, and these were mostly located in the terminal ileum. So based on that, um, there were a lot of new diagnoses. Uh, 23 of the original 559 patients were diagnosed with IBD. This is 4.4%. 22 had a new diagnosis of Crohn's, one had an unclassified IBD. In these 23 patients that had this new diagnosis, 17% had a family history of IBD, 30% uh, had clinical symptoms compatible with IBD. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I think it's important to, um, to think about this in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, certainly, axial spondylar arthritis and IBD have a clear overlap, and, and in this um, about one in 25 patients were noticed to have a, an undiagnosed IBD. Um, it, um, you know, starting with uh, what they did in the study, family history and clinical history are big, um, are big drivers, are, are big, um, you know, are, are big things that we should start with in the clinic to look at those. Uh, but even with that, there were patients that had uh, fecal calprotectin as the uh, potential sign that there might have been uh, some inflammation in their GI tract. So um, how much of that um, is of clinical significance? Uh, I, I think we need some more information, but I think it's a, an important study to, uh, number one, look at that overlap of the disease, put some numbers on the potentially undiagnosed IBD, and, and the use of fecal calprotectin, which I think could be a great screening tool in some of our patients to look for IBD. Um, so a great abstract over there from the ISER study and a lot more uh, on this ACR convergence on room now. I'm Anthony Chan from uh, London, United Kingdom, here at um, ACR 23 in San Diego reporting for room now. And today we've had a very nice uh, new information coming up uh, in the area of axial spondyloarthritis. One of the issues that we have is the issue of possibly overdiagnosis of patients with axial spar. In the drive to reduce delays to diagnosis with access to more MRI, we also are faced with the possibility of overcall or overdiagnosis. And one of the posters presented today, poster number 1392, uh, deals with this issue in a very novel way. And I'd like to um, welcome uh, Professor Dennis Padupni from the Charité Hospital in Berlin, who has done some very nice work looking, looking at the use of telemedicine and also a more central referral system to review scans. So Dennis, welcome to today's uh, talk. And I wonder whether you could introduce to us your paper, 1392. Thank you very much, uh, Tony, uh, also for interest in our work. Indeed, we established a central platform for, for the assessment of clinical and imaging information 
from um, patients suspected with exospondylitis. We recruited a community-based rheumatologist and orthopedist and asked them to upload clinical information, imaging information for the central evaluation done by Sinofon Borilakos and myself. Um, we are presenting today results after uh, 277 patients recruited in the study and indeed we could confirm um, in, uh, in the result what we already expected. We see that in patients uh, where exospondylitis is excluded, mm -hmm. in most of them we could confirm that it is indeed not an exospondylitis. Mm -hmm. But in patients locally diagnosed with exospondylitis, we saw an indicator of substantial overcall. Mm -hmm. In around one-third of the patients, we saw signs of other conditions and not of exospondylitis. And these are patients locally diagnosed with mm -hmm. XLSB. Mm -hmm. So they must have uh, considered the possibility of exospondylar arthritis, either on imaging or clinically at the time when they made the diagnosis. In those third of patients, what other causes could have presented as possible exospondylar in your, in your analysis? Yeah, um, there are uh, several uh, potential indicators that resulted into a suspicion and then finally into a diagnosis of exospondylar arthritis. It was uh, presence of inflammatory back pain. Mm. Um, that is a syndrome and not necessarily uh, specific for inflammatory problem in the exoskeleton. B27 positivity that could be mm -hmm. present just by chance. And in more than half of uh, patients uh, with indicators of uh, being misdiagnosed, there was a presence of unspecific bone mineral edema in sacroiliac joints. Mm -hmm. So we think that indeed, as you said, the broad introduction of MRI and being uncritical to findings on, on the uh, MRI might result into overcall of exospondylitis in the presence of just unspecific bone marrow edema or bone marrow edema caused by mechanical stress. Yeah. So when you were an analyzing them and you um, confirmed they didn't have XLSBA, what are some of the tips for us? What are the pitfalls or areas where we could consider uh, important when we're trying to make a diagnosis or exclude a diagnosis of exospondylitis? Yeah, very good. Um, so, first of all, um, the good quality imaging is really important. It was an uh, eye-opening uh, finding for us to see that the protocols for sacroiliac joints, they were, in most of the cases, very old. So, about 20 years old, and they do not give you a chance to analyze sacroiliac joints in an appropriate way. In those uh, MRIs where um, assessment was positive, uh, possible, we realized um, that, um, as, I, as I mentioned, bone marrow edema itself was a trigger for, for overdiagnosis. Um, and we, we know nowadays clear indicators or clear uh, uh, parameters how to differentiate mechanically induced bone marrow edema from um, bone marrow edema caused by, by spondylarthritis. The localization of bone marrow edema is very important. So bone marrow edema, uh, which is localized in a very anterior portion of the joint, not in the mid part of the joint, is rather unspecific. Bone marrow edema close to the capsule or to the intestinal compartment might be unspecific. 
And then in patients coming to us with already long-standing history of back pain, it is very important to look at bolar edema in the context of structural changes. If spondylarthritis is present for several years, you would always expect some structural changes. But then if you see bone marrow edema uh, without any structural changes um, on T1 or life sequence, especially no erosions, no backfill, then in most of the cases it would be a rather unspecific bone marrow edema or bone marrow edema caused by yes. mechanical stress. So those, uh, those early changes on the MRI being specific or non-specific was quite a good predictor of a future diagnosis of XLSPA. From your study, this is yeah. correct. Yeah. Correct, and uh, we we see as a potential for an improved training for radiologists, but also for rheumatologists on how to differentiate between mechanical problems and true, truly inflammatory changes. It's very uh, innovative your mechanism of delivering this through telemedicine and a more like a virtual setup. How easy was it to set up with so many different teams around you and to have a central place to read this? Yeah, um, um, I think that this can be used as a, as a model. So we, we, we wanted to approach not university settings, but indeed community-based settings. Mm -hmm. And the central assessment done by, by, by people dealing with familiar arthritis, and I think this, this model can be, can be transferred also to, to other settings, to other countries. Yes, I think, I think we would you know, welcome uh, the use of uh, such, a, such a setup because uh, Increasingly, many of these uh, scans are read by non-specialized non radiologists. Eh? There's also the need for training and education in that space. Would the future be that the referrals come in, the quality will start to improve? Maybe there could be a two-way conversation between the center and the, and the periphery? Absolutely. This is one of the aims of this, this project, and I see a, a very high educational value of this because we not only educate on interpretation of the imaging, but we also ask rheumatologists to conduct the radiologists to improve the protocols to apply the modern protocols um, um, uh, in order to improve the image quality. Yes, that's excellent. So what would be your top three takeaway things from your poster today which you want the audience to kind of consider for you? What would be your top three? Yes, so um, um, apply modern protocols for MRI imaging uh, look always carefully at uh, MRI of sacroiliac joints because bone marrow edema can be induced by mechanical stress and when looking at bone marrow edema always define what is the anatomical localization of this so very anterior portion of the joint is rather unspecific and always interpret bone marrow edema in the context of structural changes which are normally present in excess bone arthritis. Thank you very much Dennis. It also shows us that we are better when we work together, when we collaborate there's so much more we can, uh, we can do together to improve the quality of our diagnosis. So thank you very much for your time and thank you very much. have a good conference. Thank you. Hello and welcome. My name is Professor Peter Nashton, School of Medicine at Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane, Australia. And I'm talking about uh, a window of opportunity in psoriatic arthritis. There's only been one real study that's looked at this carefully from um, Mohammed Haroon in Dublin that showed there was a window of opportunity where people would do worse functionally, the possibility of drug-free remission, etc., is about six months. So this was a Dutch cohort of 855 patients. <clears throat> they had new diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. These people were DMARD naive, and they looked at um, the total delay 
of getting diagnosed and treated. They looked at whether it was related to the patient and they found that was quite short, about four weeks. They looked at whether it was a GP delay and really that was quite short as well. It was about 18 weeks because the median delay for the whole cohort was about 42 weeks to get diagnosed. So they split them into those patients who had diagnosis delay of less than 12 weeks, between 12 and 52 weeks, and greater than 52 weeks. And they showed quite clearly and significantly that if your delay was over 52 weeks, you had significantly less chance of getting into um, minimal disease activity, significantly less chance of getting DAPS or low disease or, uh, or remission, and significantly worse hack over time. Um, there was no difference in x-ray progression and although numerically better there was not a big difference between 12 and 52 weeks which is a little disappointing but clearly over 52 weeks is bad news and I'm sure that the real problem is that a lot of these patients even though this study didn't show it they live in general practice where the, the uh, penny never drops between the joint symptoms and the presence of psoriasis. So these patients are considered to have osteoarthritis and just treated with an anti-inflammatory. Why? ESR normal, CRP normal, rheumatoid factor negative, maybe a bit of nodal OA, they're written off as having um, osteoarthritis and just given an NSAID. The number of these patients who have a painful swollen knee that gets an unnecessary arthroscopy, the number of patients who have forefoot inflammation and have unnecessary Morton neuroma surgery, so this is an educational opportunity at general practice and we need to think about timely referral and cut down the, any delay to get people appropriately diagnosed and treated. doesn't always mean they have to have very expensive biological treatment because there's no difference in x-ray progression, but clearly they need to have their, their pain, their fatigue, their symptoms, their quality of life improved by appropriate treatment. Thank you very much for your attention.